0: Welcome to Diamond Profile by GCal, Gym Certification and Assurance Lab. GCal is excited and proud to welcome you to the launch of our brand new podcast series, Diamond Profile. With each upcoming episode, GCal will bring to the industry real-time information from respected industry experts. In the unprecedented times that we are living through, no one individual or company has all the answers. In trying to figure out how to navigate these challenging times, GCAL will be reaching out so our industry can experience the power of sharing information. And now for your host, Angelo Palmieri.
1: Hello and welcome. I am your host, Angelo Palmieri, Chief Operating Officer of GCAL, and I'm very excited to introduce two industry leaders from Stuller, located in Lafayette, Louisiana. It is widely believed that almost every independent jeweler in the United States has been or is a customer of the Steller organization throughout the years. Some of you would be surprised to learn that Steller pioneered and perfected the have it your way and overnight by dedicating a runway next to their manufacturing plant in Lafayette for UPS and FedEx planes. Matt Steller has been a pioneer in thinking outside the box for our industry. The Steller Diamond Director, Carl Lenhart, and the Vice President in Strategic Analysis, Harold Dupuy, Both seasoned veterans of the industry will join us today to discuss all things diamonds, gemstones, and jewelry. Welcome, Carl and Harold. Thank you. Thank you, Angelo. So, the first topic that we want to cover today, I think it's something that every company has had to respond to, obviously, is coronavirus. And just interested to know how Stellar has responded to coronavirus, everything from how it's impacted your operations and what you guys have implemented to both protect your staff and ensure the continuity of your business.
2: First, we were forced to close at the uh, March 23rd by local ordinances, so uh, it takes a while to close a facility of this size. We were completely shut down for three weeks and then subsequently uh, obtained permission to have a skeleton crew inside the building. We had some of our maintenance people And they were involved in retrofitting the facility to comply with all of the COVID directives. Big investment there, uh, spread out all the lunch tables in the malls, uh, changed faucets in the restrooms to no hand touch, installed sinks outside the front door, sanitizers about every 25 foot in the hall. Uh, I could go on and on. It's been a fortune uh, retrofit the building it uh, to protect the employees.
0: I don't have much of that to offer and I think we've done extraordinarily at what they've done to try to make it a safe workplace. And uh, it's just been an interesting journey, to say the least. <laughs> yeah, most of the internal meetings, Angelo, in the building are now on
2: Microsoft Teams. We In every conference room, and there are plenty of them in the building, uh, has a maximum number of people that can be in any room at any given time. Uh, but even though we're in the building and you've got a thousand people, very few physical meetings. Microsoft Teams is the go-to thing internally. Yeah,
1: yeah. no, that's um, very interesting. Even even with people having to be physically in the office, you're still doing virtual meetings inside your own operation, which I think just speaks to the size and scale of your of your operations down there. Has there been anything specifically that has you know, worked really well or or not worked as well in terms of physical separations, rotating teams, you know, shifts with people in order to keep those operations running the way your customers expect, but with the limitations that you have to operate under?
2: Well, I think like most companies, we weren't fully prepared at the beginning for the working home environment because we're a production facility by and large but we had to quickly adapt. I mean, there were certain departments within the facility that that was commonplace for them, a few days a week at home, a few days in the office. But uh, there was a lot of change uh, quickly. I would say during the complete shutdown, you know, efficiency suffered a little bit, but we kept the ball moving forward a lot better than expected. And it quickly became the norm. We still have certain departments that – work at home and physical, split shifts, Uh, obviously can't do production work from home. So that was the hardest part when we started bringing people back into the production facility. And we have satellite operations in Yucatan and uh, they were locked down too. And so uh, we really burned some overtime hours here in Lafayette trying to catch up because there was a pent up demand once we opened partially, Uh, it really started rolling fast
1: and and i think that, that that's great that you've been been able to to ramp back up and meet the demand and i think we've been hearing across the country from small and large retailers that demand has been has been quite strong since since the reopening whether that was in late april sometime in may or even some of us here in the northeast you know in the beginning of june we had a little bit more of a delayed opening so i think that that segues nicely into maybe some of the retail trends that we're seeing retail sales data you know how you see it from your customers you know what are you seeing what are you hearing in terms of you know how retailers are doing now that they're opening their doors
2: well while while we were closed or many of the states were closed we were tracking each state with uh, closure dates and partial reopening dates and everything and as a business return it mimicked uh, those clo- uh, covid uh, ordinances uh, throughout the united states Before we shut down, the analytics team built a recovery model. Uh, Very complex, a lot of variables, a lot of input. It was kind of a a Dr. Fauci model. The more data I had going in, the more accurate it was. And we had a prediction with uh, two weeks of closure and partial reopening, we didn't see prior year volume coming until late Q4. Happy to say that we were wrong. It's come back a lot quicker, and it's parallel. I think the infectious rate by the states, we looked at that. And so we could see the big states who had problems, the small states didn't. The five states that never closed were small. But uh it really, I think the bottom line is that we had no idea at closure that it would return in the manner it did.
1: Yeah. Yeah, it's been the, the recovery has been been very interesting. As you mentioned, tracks geographically with, with where we're seeing rising or decreasing infections and consumer confidence seems to go hand in hand with with the spread or the decrease in spread of the virus. Yeah, there were,
2: you know, I think I mentioned earlier before we got on the call that the uh, Census Bureau reported January sales for jewelry stores, but because of insufficient data, they have not reported February, March, April, nor May. So we don't have a good handle on the jewelry stores. Uh, but looking at some industry analysts, uh, March was probably down somewhere in the neighborhood of 30 to 50%. April was where it really took the brunt, 75 to 80% down. And then May, we started to see the recovery being down about 45 June is not out yet, but if I look at the industry total, which includes all vertical selling uh, fine jewelry, it's trended back up. And um of course we didn't expect this second wave, but right now
0: we're in a better spot than we thought we would be in March. Yeah, I think I don't have any hard data behind it, but we always speculated that one of the outcomes from this would be the psychological factor and that people would want to buy diamonds or and or diamond jewelry. And if, if you just looked at the fact that if you can't fly. You can't have large wedding receptions. You're going to want to spend the money somewhere, and it looks like they've spent it uh, on jewelry or a bigger piece of jewelry.
1: Yeah, I think that's an extremely important insight, Carl, that the disposable income that the gems and jewelry industry fights for in normal times is travel, is leisure, is luxury, is restaurants and almost every one of those areas has been taken away as an option from the consuming public. I think one of the other things that that we've spoken about in previous conversations is the the amount of stimulus that has been pumped into the economy through the individual checks, the unemployment bump of $600 per week and the massive amounts of of federal spending which we're now at another inflection point potentially at the end of this month when all of that stimulus is basically running out. And so I think we're all sitting here and that that projection model you have, Harold, is going to change. It it could take two very different paths depending on what Congress does. And that's a scary thing to rely upon Washington that kind of holds the the fate of our future in their hands.
0: Yeah, you're absolutely right. I agree. One note I'll
2: tell you through uh, May. Year to date May, if you look at the jewelry industry, that includes all verticals that's jewelry store, warehouse clubs, online, everybody. The industry is down about 19% from prior year. Much better place than uh, I thought. Surprisingly, all retail, excluding automobiles, is two tenths of a percent plus. So, total United States retail has has recovered pretty quick.
1: You're saying excluding autos, retail? I exclude auto because auto
2: is about 22% of total retail. Sure. So, depends on how that sector goes, it can influence your total retail number. So, I like to look at with it without, but without it plus two tenths of a percent above water.
1: Wow. So, So, overall retail in May, basically plus minor plus, year over year.
2: Yeah, relatively flat. Now, one thing we were talking about the independence, and, and this is just a theory, but using data, if you look at jewelry imports, they generally account for about 80% of the supply chain in America. If you take jewelry industry sales, converted to cost of goods, and you look at the supply chain, about 80% is imported. So through May, the industry's down 19%. Imports are almost slashed in half. Jewelry imports are down 46%. So, what does this do? It, it gives domestic manufacturers a leg up. So, the recovery is accelerated for domestic manufacturers because of the import slash. Now, from the retail standpoint, uh, I track a producer's price index, which is the manufacturer's wholesale level pricing, and I track CPI for jewelry. That's price at the counter. In June, retail prices are down 9.7% while producer prices are up four. So you have a terrible margin squeeze going on at retail. And that makes logical sense because of the cash flow crunch that most retailers have found themselves in. They've reverted to discount just to generate some cash.
1: Interesting. Those are fascinating stats. But I think that was an excellent recap of kind of the general market dynamics. Um, Harold, do you have any other statistics that you wanted to throw out in
2: terms of? Uh, no, there was some data that came out from um, Edge Retail Academy. This is mid-June, and Edge Retail Academy uh, has uh, about 1,000 stores that account for $2 billion of annual sales. So it's a pretty good-sized sample. And as of June 15th, they were tracking at 83% of prior year sales. So mid-June, they were down 17, which kind of parallels what I was telling you about total industry now. So uh, I think the independents uh, got hit a little bit harder because your big box guys stayed open because jewelry is only a part. And they had some... Product categories that government allowed them to stay open, so they kept selling jewelry where independents completely closed. But it looks like the independents are coming back uh, on par with the industry.
1: Sure. No, I think that's that's great, and I think, like I said, from all the jewelers that we speak to on a daily and weekly basis, we've heard great, really great reports. I think you know it could be in part that people's people's expectations were low, but everybody that we've spoken to seems very positive with the rebound in their business since, since reopening. I think that we're going to, turn to, we're going to turn to talking about diamonds. And in this category, there are so many things to talk about. We can talk about natural versus lab-grown, which has been an increasing debate over the last five years in the industry, but also want to dig into the four Cs, color, clarity, cut, and carrot and see what kind of trends we're seeing in the marketplace. So, Carl, I believe this is your area. And I'm going to open the floor to you if you want to just talk about some general dynamics and, and maybe at some point during this this conversation about diamonds, we should talk about what's happening in in India, in China, in certain production areas where um, the diamond supply chain relies heavily uh, upon upon other countries.
0: Well, they're all... So tied together because we're going to talk about some pricing dynamics that are happening in the market right now. And a lot of that's probably going to be the influence of the disruption of the supply chain due to the ability to just easily move product around the globe. Um, Interestingly, coming back from being closed, um, both natural and lab grown have shown, you know. High, high levels of demand and in larger sizes as well, especially in natural for, there was a real spike, you know, in what we were, what I saw in demand for two and a half, three carat, four carat um, rather quickly. But in the general, you know, typical American range, you know, S-I-G-H-I. Um I had always speculated that that lab was going to recover very, very quickly. Um, or actually um, probably outperform natural um, when this thing ended because of the price points that it can provide. Um, So, and we'll see even more like to your speculations, you know, what happens when all the stimulus money dries up and people are still going to get married and they're still going to get engagement rings, but their disposable income might be less. So does that drive them towards... Uh, more lab than natural, Um, I I don't know. Um, The jury's out and the consumer will speak. Um. On that, Carl, have you seen, if we
1: look at even a year ago period or pre-coronavirus, January, February, now that you've been operating since late April, May, June, part of July, do you see a shift in either category? Do you see a shift towards one of them? Or... Pretty similar sales percentages between those two categories.
0: I think they're pretty similar. I mean, personally, we we saw some growth in natural that you know we were wondering if it was being subdued, you know, due to cannibalization from lab Um So it's been very um, a, a nice sign to see that there's there's demand for both. Obviously. More and more people are opening up their willingness to deal in lab grown. So, that growth figure is when you compare it against the total, is exaggerated. You know, when looking at percentages, um, but uh, both have done well, and you're starting to see, you know, the consumer who wanted who has five thousand dollars to spend is much more open to lab grown than the consumer that has $25,000 to spend. But I'm starting to see that segment grow on the higher end. Right, so larger sizes. Larger quality. sizes are in demand. And and I think the retailers, as they're getting into this, are figuring out how to sell it too. In the beginning, they were sent, I, my statistics where I really shocked the first full year of data we had the average size I was selling for a lab grown was the exact same as it was for a natural, wow. which was three quarter carat round. Right. And so that long term is probably not a good strategy for the retailer. Um, in terms of how many extra units they have to sell to, to make up the volume. Sure. Um, but I, I think that's changing now. They're, they're figuring out to sell a bigger or, and or better stone. So
1: are you seeing that as a trend that your average lab-grown stone sold is larger than your average natural stone? Uh, yes. That would make sense for sure. What about in terms of qualities? Do you see qualities are higher on the lab-grown side than the natural side? Well, qualities are higher, but
0: that's just due to the nature of the product, right? So I have a certain amount of customers that just were like, Please, every nice I one lab grown you see, please tell me about it because it's such an incredibly low price point, but it's it's. I don't think it's even two percent of the total production. You know, I mean, now now and that varies when you start to talk about H P H T grown versus C D B grown, right? There 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 are some I ones H P H T out there, but a lot of that material is is not nice either. You know, so that affects its saleability. But there's a certain segment that are just absolutely beautiful. Um, I1, even sometimes I2. I mean, I'm sure you've seen it as it's come through the grading laboratory. It's, it's you know, it's, it's one or two pieces out of a thousand. But, but it, they're very exceptional when you look at the, at the price point. But, so you're, but to your point, it's a, it's a higher clarity for sure. Um, the real struggle, and one from a pricing dynamic, is when you start talking about supply and demand. Is that the American consumer, or my customer, the retailer, is used to wanting to buy GHI vs two, for example, right? So then they'll say, "Can I get a three-carat lab-grown round, and I want it to be GSI one?" This is a very difficult item. I can sell you. DEVS1, DDS very easily in that size, or I can sell you IJVS easily in that size. But the amount of GH, SI1, VS2, is, is a very small percentage of the production.
1: Yeah, I think that while nobody wants to hear it, I think there are certain shortages and rarities in lab grown production today. It doesn't mean that it can't be solved, but it's a it's a matter of fact in the market that certain sizes shapes and quality combinations are in very short supply. So let's talk about let's talk about shape. I've been in this industry for going on 15 years and when I started round was king and princess was queen. That was a clear one and two. Well what's the landscape of the market right now in terms of shape? What's the top 3-4 shapes?
0: Round is still king and oval is queen and she's about ready to take the king's head off. Yeah, oval is Oval is very, very strong. It has been for, geez. I mean, I saw this trend coming on maybe four years ago. Um, and then you didn't know if it was just an anomaly, but when you start to see that the, the mounting sales and things like that started to show you the exact same thing, you know, and sometimes, you know, we didn't catch the trends at the same time. I think that maybe the jewelry side didn't catch up as quick as the diamond side did or understood it. But, uh, um, but fancy shapes in general, pear shape doing very well. Cushion was very popular and is subdued a little bit, but it's still popular in a nice stone, you know. And as with everything, is it, you know, if you have a top of the line, well made fancy, you can almost name your price. But if it's a if it's a poorly made stone, you struggle to give it away. Um, so make make is everything where fancy's concerned, but I don't, and I've yet to see that um, trend subside. And that goes in lab and natural.
1: So same, same, same shape preferences, natural, lab-grown, doesn't matter.
0: Right, and then the, some of the differences too is that you know, the availability of fancy shape in lab-grown is much less than it was in, in natural. Um, some of the reasons why is that some of the rough just doesn't lend itself to fancy shapes as um, easily, especially the, the longer models like ovals or pear shapes or radian or emerald cut, but you're starting to see those come on uh, more. There's demand for lab-grown princess. Um, princess in lab-grown, they're making more of it, but it's also it's not easy to cut a princess sometimes, the, especially in CBD. you would think it would be easy because the, 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 the rough is a block, it's square, but due to the nature of cvd and all the polycrystalline on the outside the edges the, the, the corners are brittle so you they tend to break in the polishing process so they they shied away from cutting princes so you see a high demand for princes but i think it's a more of a supply as much of a supply thing as it is a demand and same with like a marquee i the minute i get a labron marquee it flies off the shelf but that's just because there's, there's not, a very, very not enough of them in
1: the marketplace and what about in terms of color, clarity? Have, have you seen any, any dramatic shifts? Have you seen anything coming out of coronavirus in the reopen? Are we seeing shifts lower, higher?
0: I wouldn't say that I've seen much of any of the shift. You know, it's still, America seems to be right in that GHI, um, I1 to BS2 range. We know with the independent probably strongly in the SI2 BS. You know, we did see more calls for the high end. D-E-B-S, they want to make an eternity band and make a tennis bracelet, you know, and, and that traditionally wasn't always Stellar's customer. No, I mean, I sold some of that, but it wasn't, it was a small portion. I don't know if some of it's afforded to the fact that we were open before a lot of other people weren't. Yeah, they couldn't go to their regular supplier for that article.
1: You guys opened limited staff end of April. Is that right? That's correct. I think uh, a lot of a lot of my friends here in New York City were um, by by the governor's orders were not allowed to operate until June eighth. So you can you can send a commission check to Governor Cuomo for that head start he gave you.
0: <laughs> exactly. Well, I, I I said keep Los Angeles and New York closed as long as possible. <laughs> yeah.
1: Carl, I think the the last thing that we should talk about when we're talking about diamonds, and it's something that we as a lab are trying to track as closely as possible is, is what's happening in India and with coronavirus. And uh, a few weeks ago, we got reports that Surat was closing the factories for a week. When that week was about to expire, they closed for another week. And when that week was about to expire, they asked for the factories to voluntarily shut to to round out that week. I think it was a midweek reopening plan and they were asked to voluntarily stay closed. Today should have been day one, resuming operations, and I've yet to hear if that's resumed and, and you know, what your thoughts are in terms of how at risk we all are that rely upon the diamond supply chain for our business, we, you know, what, what that can look like in the next four, six, eight weeks. When we initially were closed
0: in March 1st to April, you know, since my job, most of my jobs requires you know, me me being able to touch product. But I spent a lot of those three weeks on the telephone with a lot of my friends overseas trying to understand how this was affecting us. And, you know, this, um, from a supply standpoint, you know, it, it hit Israel about the same time it hit the United States. I mean, they were shutting down. But the, India was still kind of open for business and they weren't feeling it and, you know, I speculated, you know, I'm talking to my friends because, you know, all of us have been to Mumbai, you know, it's a very, very densely populated place in many ways like New York, and how could New York have all the cases it had, and India not have any, and it, it, they're like, well, we're not seeing it, it's, no, Goa, the people ran away from China very quickly and came home, but it, it hit about six weeks later, and, and it's, It's far from peaking. And there, they've done about as good a job as you can do in a place like India and try to contain it through shutdown, even though they opened up pretty quickly. I mean, for them to shut down public transportation, the trains and the buses um, for over a month um, is next to extraordinary. Like, I don't think they closed the subway down in New York. There might not have been anybody on it, but it was running, right?
1: No, you're, you're absolutely right. I I think when when I've talked to customers in India uh, and I've told them about our lockdown or when we were reopening, they would laugh and say, you guys aren't in a lockdown. We're in a lockdown, to your point. Public transport wasn't shut down here. You could go out to the grocery store. You could go to the pharmacy. You could really go anywhere you, you chose to go at your own risk. But they took a lot more severe measures in India to really try to uh, restrict the spread
0: but to control it there and that's the problem i mean when you get down to the point it's how it's being spread you know and it's the it's the the, the lower class domestic workers in a lot of places that are bringing this back off after the real right so you have you know positive cases touching a lot of well-known family names in the diamond business right? and not to mention their factories um, so They tried to open back up and then, like you said, had to close back down, open back up. And a lot of people have written about, which is the case, is that a lot of the diamond cutters, the actual workers, they went back to their villages, you know, in the countryside of uh, of Gujarat, right, which is the state of which Surat is in. Even if they're working, at best might be 30% capacity because so many of the workers left. And especially after this kind of second little spike, you know, they reopened. So some of them tried to stay in Surat to see if it would reopen, but, you know, the cost of living in Surat is much more expensive than what it is, you know, from their their country homes or, you know, the villages they grew up in. So there's, they, after the second bout, they started to go back and the odds of them coming back anytime soon um, aren't that good. And when you think about it, You know, it's just a few months before it's the traditional Diwali shutdown. So there are goods in the market to be had, and there's some fresh manufacturing coming out of the GIA, or now that they've reopened, but but it's small amounts. Now, there's a lot of polish left on the market there, but that's going to be eroded through very quickly. Plus, a lot of it is the less desirable material. So now um, we're going to start to see Two pricing paradigms. Anything that's new and fresh and juicy and you want to own it, you're going to pay. You know, it's going to to keep a price, but there's going to be a lot of leftover stuff that they're going to want to turn into cash if possible. And you can buy that stuff um, at a good discount. So when you look at the macro numbers, you know, people will say, you know, the, the price of diamond is down 10%, 15% 10 percent, 15 percent. Throw it out there. But the question is, is I can go out and buy a million dollars tomorrow, and I can buy it really cheap. But do you want to own it? Um, because when the market does recover, and it will recover, if you're stuck with some of that inventory, you're going to struggle to sell it, right? Because then the market will adjust on the other on the other things. You know, the price will level out, and the premiums will go away. And, you know, there's just so much unknown about what the miners are going to do, right? right? So, you know, the minute the big boys, you know, really lower the price of the rough, so if the beers in right, lower the price right. of the rough, you know, because they finally are in a cash crunch, uh, mm-hmm. then there'll be an upheaval in the market that who knows how long it'll take to ride out. So at this point, Stellar
1: as a buyer of diamonds, a consumer of diamonds, in your production, in your selling, you're not seeing a disruption in supply today. Pockets, certainly. Yeah, I mean there there are
0: pockets. There's areas that you struggle. All right. So, um, and don't be wrong. Is it just just about anything's available at a price? Understood right now, does that mean that we can purchase it and it allows us to be anywhere competitive in the landscape as in our position as a wholesaler? There's you run into some difficult. But if
1: we see, if we get reports out of Surat that two, three, four more weeks of shutdown, you would expect that that would start to create some larger pockets of supply problems.
0: Yeah, and especially areas you know where there, there is demand since China came out of lockdown uh, before the U.S. did, you saw a surge in demand um, in mainland China, uh, in uh, Korea, and uh, for some better V.S. product, in J- even Japan. I was told, right? So certain pockets there, that there's, that, you know, there's pressure on on those goods, so the prices really went up. And, and how much of that is, is new and fresh, I mean, it, it's, hard to, it's hard to say, but there's definitely pockets of shortages.
1: Yeah, yeah, I, I think that's the one thing that in our entire industry we have to keep an eye on is, um, obviously, we've been focused on India, which is where the vast majority of the diamonds are cut and polished. But, but obviously, you have other cutting centers, Israel, Belgium, and China and Vietnam, also to a lesser degree that we all have to keep an eye on. We, we can keep our businesses open, but yeah, if cotton polished diamonds are not flowing through the supply chain, we're all gonna face, face challenges.
0: Right, yeah, but I mean, they were prior to the shutdown due to the cost of rough, you know, they were avoiding bigger, better material, right? So the cost of five to 10 rough, you know, it's gonna yield you, you know, two and a half, three, four or five carat polish. You know, they were buying less because they just couldn't touch the rough from the, for the syndicate. So um, you, you see less of that in, in the marketplace.
1: So less of the larger size, two, two plus carat in the natural I say, stones. I would say, yeah, two plus
0: carat. From two to five carat, you'll see the shortage there first.
1: This has been, been quite a year. <laughs> um, before, we, before we move to gemstones, Carl, do you have anything else in terms of diamonds that, that's interesting or that you want to share? No, it's kind of
0: just, it changes daily, you know, it's not trying to figure out the logistics, you know, and and it's the opening and reclosing and opening and reclosing, that, you know, because what does it mean as far as, you know, I have to hand it to people logistically. Um, they uh, got the diamonds here, but you know, what used to take two days sometimes took two weeks. Um, I guess one last thing though, never count out the ingenuity. the Indian diamond tier. They will find a way to cut and polish diamonds. (laughs) They always do.
1: (laughs) I think that's a that's a good note to close off the diamond segment. I think they are um, they've obviously innovated uh, quite spectacularly over the last few decades and have really brought cut and polished diamonds into to a whole new world. So Harold, let's talk about gemstones. What are we What are we seeing in terms of gemstone sales by variety? And again, I think the evergreen question of the interview is: Have there been any changes as a result of coronavirus, pre, post, during? What kind of trends are you guys seeing?
2: No major shifts, Angelo. From looking at the data, um, you know, precious ruby, emerald, sapphire is still the biggest segment of gemstones. That's about a third of, of the business. Uh, Semi precious is probably about a quarter of it, and it's been stable like that for years. Surprisingly, Moissanite keeps on selling. Just when you think it's over with, it, it just it keeps growing. That's a you know I've been watching that for for years, but uh, synthetics are still strong out there. But no specific stones. I mean, if you get blue sapphire, still king in in the uh, precious stuff and. You're getting in some of these fancy colors and sapphire, the teals, the blue greens, the stuff that used to be kind of tossed away. Is now a lot of designers taking that material, and uh, because of the uniqueness of it selling, but uh, it's not scalable, you know. Uh, yeah. So no major trends in, in gemstones.
1: So let, let's let's go back to moissanite. I think that's fascinating. So you're saying that moissanite has been kind of a stable category that that maybe you've you've thought is going to be a trend that may disappear at some point, but it keeps hanging in there. Just one, one point on this before I turn it over to you. Do you think, obviously, there was one large dominant producer of moissanite in our industry for a number of years, and that patent expired several years ago. Do you attribute growth in moissanite sales today to a lot of new suppliers and producers of that product?
2: Well, that was the first indication we thought that the market would change, but it really just bifurcated. Uh, they're still out selling uh, Charles and Cobart, uh, and there's a generic side, so it's a dual price point uh, market. Uh, but what it really is, is that even in the engagement ring category, it's a stepping stone that still sells and The next step is lab grown and the third step is natural diamond. So uh, surprisingly, even with generic, which is selling probably half of the price, you got to sell more units, the real stuff and the generic stuff still holds its own.
1: And did you expect when lab grown started to get a foothold in the market that that would cannibalize moissanite sales? Was that something you guys thought about?
2: We discussed it, but we didn't have any concern because the gap in price was sufficiently enough where it wasn't substitutable. Got it.
1: And you're seeing, you, you believe, to the extent you know, Moissanite sales are for bridal. I mean, that's what you're seeing Moissanite being
2: sold in? Well, it's across the board. It's some in bridal, but it's some in fashion. It's in all the, all the basic studs, uh, tennis braces, earrings, you know, things of that nature and all, all the core you know, what I call the navy blue blazer in the men's shop. It's always going to be there. It always sells. It may change in market share, but it's going to be there.
1: So let's talk about jewelry. Uh, We can talk about maybe bridal first. Uh, Again, any changes that you've seen or shifts coming in or out of coronavirus. Um, But what, what what are the main styles driving, you know, the bridal market?
2: Uh, believe it or not, the uh, Halos are still around, uh, not as big a share, but they're still the dominant player. Solitaires has had a little resurgence. Uh, the Stackable is the biggest single fashion trend in Bridal, where you know the engagement rings an anniversary, multiple purchases there, uh, both in lab and, and natural and all, but uh, still a pretty stable business. You'll see a lot of new designers entering uh, with, you know, salt and pepper, diamonds, or what have you, something off the wall. But it's really out on the long tail. It's not big, big volume. You know, it's niche markets, so to speak, and all. So um, Bridal is still stable Uh, for us. It's a a growing business, has been. we put a lot of focus in the last five years. It's important. Yeah, great.
1: And so b- before we turn to the last section of the conversation, is there anything, diamonds, gemstones, jewelry, or any trends or shifts that, that you've seen? Or does it seem like most things have remained pretty constant throughout this pandemic, protests, quite an uncertain and rocky rocky period of time for our country, and seeming like the trends are staying, remaining the same?
2: Yeah, they're, they're fairly stable, no big swings. I mean, you'll see some drop in average price points, but they come back in a month or two. Uh, the recent name change from DPA Diamond Producers Association to Natural Diamond Council, to me, I interpreted that as a shift from Half feeling McCoys, trying to denigrate the other product to let the rising tide lift all boats. You know, COVID was kind of a wake-up call, I think, for the natural side, and if you look at uh, what the Natural Diamond Council is doing from a marketing standpoint, it finally made sense to me. You know, internally, we debated this stuff when we got into it in 2016, and we arrived at the conclusion, which I think DPA, now Natural Diamond Council, four years later has arrived at, it's a consumer choice. And, and so I think that is going to put some wind in the sails of lab grown uh, from a legitimized standpoint, but uh, just a thought that occurred while Carl was talking.
1: Absolutely. And I think uh, GCAL started certifying lab grown in 2015. And we had a lot of internal debates about making that choice. And the one thing that really tipped, tipped the scales for us it to be a no-brainer was, once we saw the product in the colorless form, and up until that point, really only fancy color lab-growns had been prevalent in the market, and once we saw that colorless lab-grown diamond at a trade show, we knew that it was going to be a product that consumers were going to want, and we said we can either stay on the sidelines of that market and allow for the potential de-evolution of the market like we've seen in natural, or we can grade it accurately represent it fairly, and have confidence to know that at least if people are choosing this product, that it's being represented and graded accurately. And so that became a very easy decision for us to make about whether to grade grade this product or not. Let's talk about some of the tools. I think that in our conversations with our customers and some of the messaging we've been doing with our clients, I think everywhere you read, people talk about the new normal and people are probably sick of hearing about the new normal, but it's the reality of the marketplace. And as we're seeing increased spikes in the Sun Belt, southern parts of the country, I think we might see them again in the northeast parts of our country as well. Obviously, there's going to be less time spent in a store face-to-face with a sales rep. And we believe that more and more information is going to be gathered online. I think people still talk about it as clicks and bricks. They might gather information online, but still come into the store to make that final purchase. But what we hear from retailers is the more visuals, the more images, the more video, the more detail, the more you can help us sell online or communicate the products that we have in our store online in an effective way to the customer, the better. So let's talk about some of the things that Stellar offers to your retail jeweler customer in that vein.
2: The first thing I would say that we offer is a a product we call Showcase, Stellar Showcase, and it's not a COVID product, it's been around for over a decade. It's where a retailer can turn our website into their own. They can personalize it and our name is gone. It has a backend product markups, multi-tier level, dynamic pricing, updated daily. Uh, they can customize the look and feel with their own store logo. We could even create a customized URL where we're totally out of the link and uh, a consumer can uh, customize product on it and then, uh, go through the retailer uh, with it, so it can be embedded as an iframe into the website of a retailer, uh, but it's a pretty, pretty powerful tool for the retailer who is not real savvy e-commerce enabled website of his own, and of course the product breadth is unlimited, but the retailer can hide categories he doesn't want to expose. But, he controls everything, look and feel and price and all. So
1: Harold, just, just going back to seller showcase. So that's for a retailer who has, who has their own site, but doesn't have e-commerce enabled or even displays of products. Maybe they just have a site contact information, maybe a small blog, uh, but, but no real e-commerce or display features to speak of. That is correct. Great. Okay. So the next thing you were talking about is ever and ever.
2: Yeah, ever and ever would probably be uh, the next thing I'd bring up is a um, customized engagement ring and wedding bands, and it's uh, online. It's got, it allows even consumers to customize metal quality, stone shape, size. A newly launched wedding band builder, they can customize a wedding band builder it's without the centers for the retailer. Uh, once a consumer lands on it, they design a A ring they like, they can search by zip code for the retailer and find the closest one to them and and forward their design to them. Uh, We provide a lot of strong branding, videos, high resolution photography, a lot of social media pages. So it's a lot of uh, help there for the retailer in the e-commerce space.
1: So this Ever and Ever site is you operate it and basically you're driving customers interested in a product they can't actually check out on the site they would be directed to a retailer in their area to go complete that transaction with that that right that's correct
2: same same model is showcase only limited to bridle with an emphasis on customization
1: how custom does it get on that site
2: they can do a lot of things it depends on how far they want to go i mean there's a there's a limit to it metal quality stone shape you know the the eighty twenty rule is what I would say. You know where most of the changes occur. You know, obviously sure. finger size and all, but uh, metal colors, stone shape, size, etc.
1: That's great, and that has the full full breadth of the bridal products that you offer.
2: Uh, it's it's actually got a curated assortment just for ever and ever. Got it. So it's it's kind of a quasi branded model, and there's a small buy in by the retailer. So it's somewhat of a limited distribution, but not fully.
1: So, is there is there exclusivity by geography? Yes, 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 there is. Okay, so it's something that not open to everybody, but open to potentially interested parties. Correct. Okay.
2: Uh, Another thing that we have is a three hundred two brand. It's a trend focused jewelry assortment, popular price points, wholesale you know, 250 to kind of 500. Uh, A lot of marketing support there too, you know, like ever and ever, social media content, high-res product images, uh, digital assets like lookbooks, consumer-facing website to launch at the end of this month. And uh, it's focused uh, primarily on women's stories, everyday popular price jewelry, which is a kind of a hole in the market that we found that it's growing.
1: You, you said this brand is called 302?
2: Yeah, we named it 302 because uh, we wanted an agnostic name and our address is 302 Rue Louis the
0: 14th. Yeah. <laughs> Very creative, <And> right? <laughs> yeah.
1: is, are these products manufactured in your facility?
0: That's correct,
1: yes. So all the 302 are made in the USA products? Yeah, yeah. So manufactured products, correct. And is that, is that something across the lines that that you highlight where, where products are, are made in the U.S., made in Lafayette? Is that something that you stress or focus? It's not been a big
2: uh, issue for us. Uh, we do in certain categories. Sometimes uh, we're using our Yucatan uh, facility to do certain parts of it. And made in the USA has very, very, very stringent requirements. If you get into the actual code, so ninety five percent doesn't count it anymore. What about GemVision?
0: GemVision, uh, yeah, that's uh, you know customization
2: is a big macro trend, and it's only getting bigger as we see. Uh, I don't know if you noticed, the uh, beers invested into this online platform, Gemist. I, I did see that. Yeah, you did see that, and uh, you know, of course, it's got a long way to go, but it's it's a great model, a lot of investor money in it right now. The stones are Swarovski crystals, but the, the the model is is good. Uh, designer uh, fees to do custom work and all, but I, I think the real beauty of Gym Jim Vision is the uh, the three level assortment of products that they offer: entry level digital goldsmith. Which is kind of primarily for a bench jeweler because it's digital, putting parts and pieces together to make a finished ring, maybe heads and shanks and things of that nature. Simple stuff, but a lot of volume there. Sure. Uh, the next level would be Counter Sketch, a, uh, a, uh, you know, a CAD tool used at the counter for end consumer. It has a big library of pre built designs and very simple interface where a consumer can actually. Uh, once they play with it for a little while can actually drive the customization process. The backend connects to Stellar, so we do all the manufacturing form. A seven to ten day turnaround which is pretty unheard of in true custom. And I think that the top product is Matrix Gold. Uh, Matrix Cat software has been around for about 20 years and we acquired Jim Vision in 09. The uh, Number two guy in the market was Rhino Gold out of Barcelona, and we acquired them. So we put the one and two CAD programs together in what's called Matrix Gold about a year and a half ago. It's it's truly for the pure customer who wants to start with a blank screen. Hmm. There's no limits on what you can do with it. It's built on a parametric model. So if you have a piece design and you want to change one component on it, everything changes proportionally right there. You don't back up and rebuild like most CAD programs. So uh, that's kind of the Rolls Royce in the CAD space.
1: And you're seeing you're seeing growth in that market in in customization at the retail at the retail counter.
2: A- absolutely, it it is um, something. It's a it's a market that we played with. Well, have it your way, which is. Matt started in 1996, so 24 years ago, I was assembling parts and pieces. Uh, but we started working, you know, probably in 2004 on a pure custom model, and then in 09 we acquired Gym Vision. So we've been in the space a long time, and it's just growing rapidly. We see no end in sight to it. So if you look at the platforms out in the market, non-jewelry. Uh, whether it be tennis shoes or cars or anything, it's prevalent all over the place. And personalization is uh, where everything is heading.
1: Yeah, the new the new generation of customers definitely is driving change across across all industry, and um, obviously it's it's impacting the jewelry category as well. Gentlemen, I want to thank you so much for for all the time you spent with us, all the wisdom you imparted on us. Um, and just for, for taking the time to, to be with us, I think uh, in these times, these uncertain times, the more information that we share with each other, whether we're colleagues, customers, suppliers, or competitors, I think overall, it makes for a better marketplace, sharing of ideas, sharing of information, what's working, what's not working. I think overall, just, um, just equates to a healthier marketplace. And I think that that's good for ultimately all of our customer is the end consumer, and that's that's what we look out for every day. And I think um, I think this just goes towards that length. So really want to thank you guys very much. Um, thank you for for being here with us today.
2: It's been our pleasure. Yeah, thank uh, you, Angela. GCal is a great partner. We from a long distance they have a lot of admiration for what you guys have done. So we were happy to be invited, and uh, thank you for having us.
1: Thank you guys. Obviously, the admiration goes both ways. And uh, one of these days, I'm going to make my way down to Lafayette to see you guys.
0: Thanks very much for spending time with GCAL today. We hope you'll join us again on Diamond Profile.